Hey Central Christian College, this is Pastor Zach and welcome to the follow-up. Last Monday we had Superintendent Bruce Cromwell come and share a little bit about um, the LGBTQ community and how we can better engage and love and serve those individuals and really where we as Central Christian College, how do we um, understand that we as an institution connected to a denomination that we have um, really some different views on these issues, some different understandings um, of what it means to follow Jesus and, and really how those things intersect. And I know that last Monday, as Superintendent Bruce was talking, there were some some things that might have been confusing, some things that at first pass you, you might not have understood really uh, where Superintendent Bruce was coming from where where the school stands, where the Free Methodist Church stands on issues of of uh, LGBTQ sorts of things. And so I thought that I would just take an opportunity and let you listen to a little bit of a follow-up conversation that Superintendent Bruce had with some pastors in our conference. So a collection of pastors in Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska um, got together over Zoom um, to talk about um, Superintendent Bruce's book, Loving from Where We Stand, and how do we minister to the LGBTQ uh, AI plus community. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you listen uh, to that conversation that we had with Superintendent Bruce as a way to hopefully continue the conversation on campus and maybe clear up anything that was fuzzy. So welcome to the follow-up, and I hope this is helpful. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, same-sex uh, relationships, how the church proceeds, how we minister, how we share, uh, how we love. I'm going to share my screen, and so hopefully you'll all be able to see this, and we'll work through it together. Again, if any of you have questions, make sure and uh, ask us, and please do try to make a point of keeping your um, your uh, computer muted. So I entitled this ministry with LGBTQIA plus persons. Part of this is because even that, that preposition with matters. It's not ministry to. The posture we take for anybody that comes into our church is incredibly important. So often we can pretend, almost like here on this screen, that, that someone's above us and someone's below us and we're deigning to reach down to you. But this is the model that I think we should have. We constantly are reaching to those who have gone before and maybe can show us the way that mentor uh, this morning, I preached about how Tuesday is All Saints Day, and we all have people we've probably looked at in our lives who have been a tremendous influence, and influences still, whether they're with us in body or in spirit. But it's important for us to consider who are we influencing behind us? Who are we helping to show the way? Who are we helping to lead along? We're all somewhere on this progression, but we're not better than. We're not somehow more holy than. So we don't deign to minister to anyone. I hope it's more of a we minister with. We draw people together. We grow together as we walk together towards Christ-likeness, towards love. Now, you may be even wondering, what does LGBTQIA plus stand for? And so I think definitions are incredibly important. How we learn to talk, especially about this issue and making sure we're talking about the same things is incredibly important. So you can see 
L stands for lesbian, which generally is referring to two female or two females who have same sex attraction. G is for gay, which is shorthand generally for males who might have same sex attraction. B is bisexual. So this would be a person who feels sexually attracted to both males and to females. If someone is trans, if they are transgender, this is not about how they're sexually attracted. This is about how they would identify. So this might be someone who is biologically a male, but feels like they're really a female stuck in a boy's body. Uh, it's, it's a matter of a sense, again, of what I see as my gender doesn't align with my sex. With that in mind, I would say that I believe there's only two sexes. God created us male and female. There isn't a third sex out there. There may be combinations, which you'll see down below in a second, but it's either male or female. There's not another option. However, gender, well, you can go on any maybe job application or a website or Google or Facebook, and there's lots of places now where there's a multiplicity of genders you could choose from. This is how people choose to identify, and this is what trans speaks to, someone who identifies as other than what their sex their biological sex may be. Q would be questioning or queer. It used to be that that was a very derogatory term, but it's not. It's been embraced by the LGBTQIA plus community now. Someone who, again, is in this sort of position of flux. I don't fit normal uh, sexual gender roles that society places on me. I, with intersex, will be someone who has born with, I don't want to call it a birth defect, but there is this situation where there may be both male and female genitalia. There are situations where I'm kind of not sure where this lands. I met a man in Kansas City a couple months ago at a conference that the Church of the Nazarene put on who was born this way, intersex, and the doctors had to decide, do we give them male or female genitalia? And they chose to make this person a female. And so the parents raised this person as a female their whole life. The person will say they always felt out of sorts, never felt right. Um, we would call them a tomboy, but just very, very masculine. And so in times, people started thinking, are you trans? Turns out, as they got into the 20s, did biological tests, other things, was completely male uh, internally. Male DNA is just the genitalia had been shifted. You can imagine the confusion this poor young man has had. Since then, with some hormone treatments and other things, Fully functions as a man actually got married, uh, is getting ready to have a child. It's a wonderful story. But there are some people for whom this is a very real issue and a very real struggle. And so do we meet them with grace as they try to wrestle with what's my identity? What's my gender? And A, there are some people who would claim I'm not attracted to anybody. I'm really not attracted by men. I'm not attracted by women. I'm kind of asexual. I, I'm in this different category altogether. That can be confusing to us. And that's where a lot of the confusion, I think, happens in churches where we don't know how to speak to the person who's different than we are. And that's part of what I'm hoping we can learn as we work through this. Because when we talk about LGBTQIA plus persons, I think it's important to realize it's not about theory. It's not about thought. It's about people. And I believe strongly these are people that we should know or we probably already do know. I'm guessing we're not going to raise our hands and go around the room, but I'm going to guess the majority of us know someone personally who would identify as LGBTQIA+. And that doesn't mean we know what to say. 
That doesn't mean that we feel like they're okay or they're right. They may be doing things that we think are wonderful. They may be doing things that we think are horrible, but these are real people. And so it's a real issue um, that we need to think about, but put flesh and blood on it and not just put in the realm of ideas or concepts or thoughts that are out there someplace. With that said, I want to be very, very clear as we move forward about what the Free Methodist Church says about same-sex relationships. We believe that God's plan for sex, both procreative and unitive, is reserved for one woman and one man in the covenant of marriage. So in other words, we as Free Methodists would say, and the Free Methodist Church is clearly saying that sexual activity, whether it is to create life or as a thing that binds the husband and the wife together, because that is a unitive function of the sex act as well, should be in the covenant of marriage between one woman and one man. And anything outside of that is not God's perfect plan. So do we believe homosexual sex is appropriate? We would say, no, that's not God's perfect plan. In the same way, two unmarried heterosexual people engaging in sexual activity is not appropriate. That is not God's perfect plan. And though I do think it's important to talk about this tonight, I want to be clear. There is more than enough heterosexual dysfunction in the church to grieve the heart of God. Before we think that homosexuality is the biggest threat that's facing the church today, we do well to consider all the pornography addiction, the adultery, the abuses that happens even in marriage. There's lots of heterosexual dysfunction. I just want to be clear about this statement because it's funny uh, even this week, I've had people who have thought that the Free Methodist Church is changing its position, similar to what our United Methodist sisters and brothers are going through. We are not. This is our clear stated position. We're not saying that people who don't believe it are bad people. We're just saying if you're part of the Free Methodist Church, understand this is what we say. We don't want you to feel like we're tricking you or changing things or adjusting things as we go. Now, again, I think it's important to have some definitions when it comes to some words. So even though earlier we mentioned the LGBTQIA plus G usually refers to same-sex attracted men, for the rest of this presentation, if I say someone is gay, I'm simply referring to anybody that is same-sex attracted. It's their attraction. It's their temptations. It does not necessarily mean that that person is acting on their attractions or their temptations. So think about that for a second. If someone is straight, we just mean that they're attracted to people of the other biological sex. If someone is gay, we mean you're attracted to people of the same biological sex. If you are a straight person, does that mean that you are engaged in sinful activity because you're straight and because you're attracted by the other sex? Not necessarily. Your temptations, they don't define you. What we do with those temptations is a huge matter of significance. But as you all know, even Jesus was tempted, but the Bible says he didn't sin. So that, to me, says that temptation is not a sin. And that, therefore, means, and let's be careful as we work through this, being gay is not a sin. Again, it's what you do with that temptation. If you're tempted to same-sex uh, relationships, that in and of itself, I do not believe the Bible says is sinful. If you act on them, that's a whole different category. But being gay is not a sin any more than being straight is a mark of holiness. 
We know a lot of people, sadly, that are heterosexual that do not honor and follow God. And I would say in the same way, there are people that are same-sex attracted that can choose God-honoring lives and follow God's word by not acting on the temptations they have. Whether it was nature or nurture is irrelevant at some point. I'm heterosexual. I'm attracted to women. It's natural. That does not mean I can sleep with every woman that I see. What I do with those temptations, how I honor God's word and God's ways as God's church has handed down to us and as we continue to process, that's what's mattering. So I want to make sure you're clear on this slide. I'm not saying gay activity is okay. I'm not saying the church condones you know, heterosexual sin outside of marriage. We're saying here, your temptations don't define you. So you're not sinful just because you're tempted in a certain way. I just want to make sure that's clear. If you have questions about it later, please, please, please come back and ask me. But the reason I think that's so, so very important is we need to be women and men who listen with grace. We need to be able to meet people where they're at, who so often are afraid to share their story, who don't feel it's safe to confess that they struggle with something. Think about your own church. And the last time someone stood up and said, pray for me, I struggle with gambling, uh, addiction to some chemical, pornography. Has anyone stood up and said, I struggle with same-sex relationships and temptations? I think we look at that person a little different than the person who says, I'm struggling with overeating. But why? Each can lead to destructive things. Each can be things that God's word is very clear about. Why do we tend to have certain favorite sins that we pick on more than others? We have to be able to listen with grace. And I want to give you some ideas on ways that we can do that. First of all, I believe strongly that listening with grace destroys stereotypes. We could easily spend time talking about the stereotypical gay person. What do you think they look like? What do you think they dress like? What do you think they talk like? What do you think they act like? And that's not fair. Any more than if you go to current media and movies and how they present evangelical Christians. Do you think that's always fair? The stereotypes can be very judgmental and mean and not fair to persons who legitimately are working through what does this mean for me as someone that was created in the image of God and is trying to honor God with my body, with my soul, with my heart, with my mind, is trying to honor God with all that I am? Listening with grace can help us, again, make it personal and remove it from just this picture that we have in our mind. Because unfortunately, this is a real struggle for many. I found this quote that just breaks my heart. To be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You are an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. It should break all our hearts. Again, it's not that we overlook things that we think are inappropriate and sinful if people are acting in sinful ways. But to have a temptation, as we've already said, temptation is not sin. It's what we do with those temptations, what we do with those thoughts, how we communicate this. That's what's a bigger issue. In the research that I've done, and, and I talk about this a little bit uh, in the book that I wrote, most persons who identify as LGBTQIA who have left churches say they would come back. And the number one thing that would cause them to come back is not 
if the church would change its position on same-sex relationships. They understand our position. They can respect that we have what we would consider a biblically historical position. Their issue is how they're treated when they're in the church, what people say about them. Does the pastor make gay jokes now and then? Are there little comments here and there that are insulting that we don't realize are insulting? It's part of why tonight I think is so helpful because we have a conversation that we're not used to having and we don't know what to say. I would hope nobody could quote this about any of our churches anywhere or the way that we treat people. We're not, again, saying that to be actively as a, you know, living a gay lifestyle, whatever that might be, we're not saying the church condones that. But we would hope anyone that comes in our doors is not treated as a pariah, as an outcast, as an orphan, as a refugee, as a diseased person. We would hope that you would see you were here as someone that Christ died for, and we want to bring you into a relationship with Christ so that your life can be all that God wants it to be. Listening with grace, another thing that it does is helps us live, look, and love like Jesus. I mean, isn't this what all of us try to do as followers of Jesus? We want to be like our Lord. We want to do the things that Jesus did. So one of the things he did, I'm going to read to you. This is a very familiar story in Luke 19. You know this. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through the town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among the tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he couldn't see because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree so he can see Jesus. You're singing the song in your head, I can tell. He was about to pass that way when Jesus came to the spot. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today, right? I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Notice verse 7. Everyone who saw this grumbled, saying he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, as if he needs to justify himself, that God could come to his house. Look, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this household because he paid back his debt. Actually, that's not at all what that says, does it? It's because he too is the son of Abraham. The human one came to seek and save the lost. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the common English version. I want you to notice these two little words in verse five. I must stay in your home today. I think we must be intentional about calling people to a life of holiness, which involves repentance for sin, whatever our sins may be, which involves conformity to the word of God, wherever we may be strained, but that doesn't allow us to grumble that God would dare to show grace to someone like that would go to the house of a sinner. I think we're in good company if we're accused of being a little too gracious to the world, of letting people know you too are a daughter, you too are a son of Abraham, you too are a child of God, you too can surrender to the grace that God has given for us all. All you have to do is say yes. For this is but one of many stories in the scripture that I know you know, where Jesus fronts with grace. Think about the prodigal son. What happens when the father sees the younger son coming home? He runs to meet him. 
The son doesn't even get the apology all the way out before he's welcomed back. He's received. He's welcomed in, not because he made amends, not because we even know for sure he'll never do this again. It's because the father so loves the son, he wanted nothing more than to see that relationship restored. And I believe the moment of salvation is when the scripture says he came to his senses and realized that my father's house, even the servants have plenty to eat. When people come to their senses and realize that God loves them and wants them to be in relationship with him again, that God so loved the world, he gave his son so that we would realize there's no price he wouldn't pay to show us the love he has for us. Even in this story, I firmly believe with all my heart, it illustrates that God is more pained by our choices than angered by them. I have two sons. They're 20 and 15 and a half, almost 16. Nothing hurts me more than when my sons are hurting. When they're sick and have a cold, when they're depressed over anything, I hate it when they're not happy. I hate it when they're hurting. And I hate it when I know maybe they made choices, wrong choices, that affect their lives. And if I, who am sinful, can feel that pain for my children, how much more is God pained by the consequences of the sinful decisions we make? But that's different than being angry and kicking us out and making us make amends and not welcoming us in. How do we share in the pain of the LGBTQIA plus community, but welcome them with grace? But notice there's more than that. There's the woman caught in the act of adultery. What does Jesus say? Where are those who have condemned you? Has no one done that? Well, neither do I. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Now go and sin no more. There's also truth. We have to have this balance where we welcome people, we love people, but we love them into a kingdom where there are certain things that we believe that others may not. It's okay and necessary that we stand on what we believe to be true. That sinful woman who comes anoints Jesus' feet. Don't you know who this is? They say, don't you know what she's done? And yet he allows her to be near him, to touch him because of his great love, because of the love that she has shown. Forgiveness has come. And even Levi, the tax collector, one of the most despised uh, uh, professions in the Bible, certainly for the Jews, was the tax collector who's partnered with the hated Romans, who's cheating their countrymen, and yet is invited to be a disciple, is close to Jesus. I think into Luke 15, where we read that all the tax collectors, those very hated people, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus, and they were all listening to him. It makes me ask the question of myself often, and it makes me wonder for all of our churches, all of our people, all of our pastors, the sinners want to be around us. And, and why not? If we're going to live like Jesus, shouldn't there be a part of our lives where we're accused of being a little too friendly to the sinful world? Not in bed with them. No one ever accused Jesus of being light on sin. Show me where that happens where we would think that he compromised the scriptures, where any of us would say that our Lord violated the commandments, but was often accused of being a friend of sinners, and sinners wanted to be with him. Why do you think that is? And why, if it's not true of us, do we think that is?
And part of it is our approach to issues like this and many others, and the judgment that we sometimes carry more than the grace. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the latter part of it, says, don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to change your heart and life? How do we show God's kindness when we call people to redemption? Are we scaring people into the kingdom with threats of hellfire, damnation, that very real separation from God that we shouldn't minimize? Or do we woo them into the kingdom through love, calling them out of darkness into his wonderful light, calling them out of those places of isolation and loneliness into a community of faith, a family of God that might wrestle with things like family. We might disagree with each other like a family. We might even have very difficult conflicts like family, but because of Christ, we're one, because we're bound together by the love of God that binds us with cords not easily broken. My prayer for all of us is, is that we simply wonder, how can we be loving from where we stand? We believe in a certain sexual ethic. Do not compromise the things you believe. But you can love from there. Just this morning, I was talking to someone, uh, and we were sharing how I resist the notion that there's only two options for Christians. Either you accept everything that a person who would identify as LGBTQIA does, or you're homophobic. I don't think those are the two options. I think there is a way of Jesus where I can believe that there's not that everything is not permissible, but I can still show you love. And I can still show you grace. And I can still live with you in community. I can still sing songs with you. I can still break bread with you. I can still try to help you become the woman or the man that God's called you to be. Just as I pray you're giving me that same grace. So we can talk a lot more about what we think the causes of this is. And I'll tell you right now, that will be a short conversation because I have yet to read any conclusive data that demonstrates a specific causality for why someone might feel that they are not cisgendered. In other words, they identify with their biological sex or that they're not heterosexual. I don't believe you can show me data that convincingly proves why some people this happens. Born that way or created, I don't know. But at the end of the day, as I said earlier, I don't think it matters. I think the question is, how do we respond? What is our posture? How do we hold to what we believe to be true, but yet maintain a posture that welcomes? I didn't put the slide up, but again, just to clarify in case there's any question, the Free Methodist Church is very clear. We have it in our discipline. Those of you on the screen who are elders like me, you know you cannot perform a wedding of a same-sex couple. We do not believe that is what God has ordained within marriage as a free Methodist elder. None of our free Methodist churches can host a same-sex wedding. It may be legal in the country, but that doesn't mean we think it's beneficial or in line with how God calls us to live. You know, everything may be permissible. <laughs> not all things are beneficial. And so we have certain things that we already choose that we will do and that we won't do. But I would hope you would still show grace. I hope you would still show love. I hope you would still be willing to listen and to try to get to meet people where they're at and to grow from there. I can talk a lot, lot more about this, but I've used half our time and I want to make sure there's plenty of time to respond to questions.
So I'm going to ask you if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have comments, again, you can write them in the chat, send them directly to Audrey, or if you post them to everyone, everyone will see them, or raise your hand. I prefer that the questions are printed in chat because some of you are like me, you can get a little verbose and go on and on. And we wanna be able to make sure we can answer as many questions as possible. So are there are any thoughts, pushbacks, questions, words for clarification, anything that I can share in these next few minutes as we keep going. <laughs> I see nothing and I know there are questions we may have. Let me let me ask a question that I know came in earlier while you're thinking perhaps or ratcheting up your courage to post something. I was asked why are we even needing to talk about this topic? Not not that it's not a real topic. But there are many things the church can be addressing. Drug abuse, uh, violence, um, heterosexual dysfunction, so many things that we could and the church needs to talk into. Why this topic? I would simply say it's in part because of what our United Methodist friends are going through. A lot of us get asked these questions a lot because of United Methodist uh, struggles. I know I certainly do. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, I had questions earlier in the week about, are you guys changing your position? Because we heard that, well, no, that's not us. No, we are not. Be praying for your United Methodist friends also. Next Sunday, I'll be north of Springfield, Missouri, uh, meeting with a United Methodist church that has voted to leave the United Methodist church and is thinking about becoming free Methodist. We have several who have prayed to that end and are considering that possibility because in part, of our continuing insistence on biblical authority and how we treat this subject. Uh, but that's part of the reason to talk about this now is because people are asking. And I think this is an issue for which we cannot afford to be unclear. We need to be clear. So I see a question. Are there examples of free Methodist churches that have started ministries to homosexuals? Yes, there are. You have churches, you have organizations that are trying to get started on our college campuses that are giving safe places for conversations to happen. And again, this isn't a matter of we're trying to change a political position. We're trying to advocate that people would give a different response. It's more of a, a group of like-minded people who want to come together to talk about what does it mean for me to honor God with my sense of who I am? I mean, just think through that in your churches that maybe you've been a part of. How many of your churches have singles ministries? And how many of them are little more than dating clubs? I hope none of them are just dating clubs. They're a place for people who are single, either by choice or just life circumstance, but where they can find friendship, where they can find connection, where they can find intimacy, which again, does not mean sexuality, but develop those kind of strong friendships. How would that be any different from a same-sex person who's trying to find that sort of connection with other friends who stick close? and who can walk with us. So we do have churches that are trying because for many places, they haven't felt safe to identify or to be open about their sexuality. Um, how do we process, walk through it, listen, talk? The reality is many of our pastors need training. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to talk about it because we haven't in the past. 
I saw a question on the side. Do I see a difference between temptation that comes from without versus temptation that comes from within? Jesus being tempted, that came from without. This is a good question, and, and part of me might Part of me might try to figure out the, I mean, is it a matter of sexual temptation? I see you, I'm, I'm now allured. Um, part of me would think that still is a temptation that comes from without. This isn't just the devil saying, if you'll bow down and do this, I'll give this to you. Uh, I believe if Jesus was fully human, that he similarly was tempted in ways that we are. Things that he saw outside, but because of the way that God gave him, and I believe your sex drive is a gift from God. You should not pray that you lose it. Don't do that. God has given us this gift that is a beautiful thing, both for the creation of the species, the ongoing pro, pro, procreation of the species, but also to bind a husband and a wife together. That temptation, though, when you see things, when you feel things, when you smell things, if I'm tempted to overeat, that's a temptation from without that appeals to a temptation from within. I'm not sure that I would that I would draw a line between where it comes from. Again, to me, it's what do I do with it? Do I give it pause? Do I ponder it? Do I allow it to take root in my heart and mind? That's a problem. Or do I say, get thee behind me, Satan? Do I quote scripture? Do I move forward? Do I try to surrender this to the Lord? That I think is a is a greater issue on how we do this. I see Dr. Dwight pointing out, uh, thank you, my friend, for the spirit. And it is hard to know what to say. It does get a little easier. Well, maybe sometimes harder when we're face to face with a person who's struggling with it. Because the temptation is to be very, very grace giving and to not speak any truth. When we're dealing with someone who's going through chemical addiction, the temptation is to just pat them on the head and tell them they're going to be okay, but not try to get them to a place where they can sober up and become clean. Learning how to do that grace and truth together is important. Question from the audience, as we seek to be more grace-filled, what are we to do as elders when members spread known falsehoods about the LGBTQIA community? That's so hard. And I would say, like for any of us, the more we talk, the more we can just speak truth into the lives of our people. So again, uh, we have a church that is recently going through a pastoral transition. Uh, and I heard through the grapevine that some, not in the church, but other people have said, oh, that's because the Free Methodist Church has changed its position and the pastor was unwilling to become liberal, so they ran him out. That could not be the farthest thing from the truth. The issue had nothing to do with sexuality or a change in position of the denomination. Those things aren't true. So you share that, and then you invite others to speak and to simply say, that's not true. We should be women and men who who always speak the truth. We should always call out falsehood when we see it and do it with grace again. But we have to be people who don't allow lies to be spread about this or anything. How can we confront falsehoods that we hear that aren't just perceptions? Back to that stereotype question. How do we make sure that what we're speaking is actually the truth of God or the truth of a denomination or even what we're trying to profess and say in our churches? This past Monday, I spoke at Central Christian College of Kansas on this issue, shared some similar ideas, but many other things, the same general posture. We have a position, but we need to give grace. I think that's the way that Jesus did it. That's the way I try to do it. Even after that, 
I heard multiple comments from people who had said, Superintendent Bruce said that homosexuality is okay. I never said that. You can go watch the recording. I'm pretty sure I never said that. Uh, I had someone who told me that another pastor in town, not a free Methodist, heard about it, called one of our free Methodists. The free Methodist tried to explain to them, no, that's not what we believe at all. No, that's not what he said. But the pastor was sure, yes, it is. Wouldn't listen to us trying to clarify the truth. Some people are like that. And if that's the case, all I can say is try to let your light shine so that they can see what's right and what's not. Because I do believe cream rises to the crop. I believe a tree is known by its fruit. I believe that nobody should ever have to fear the truth. And so if you are someone who lives with integrity and do what is right, eventually that gets seen and, and is known by others. That's a hard, hard question. But I think it's also okay to speak truth, even if it means that some people may be offended. One of my favorite uh, instructions from John Wesley to the people known as Methodists was be not nice. It does not mean what we often think of today. Of course, he wants you to be kind and loving and gentle. His point was, there were these ideas that you can't talk about issues and you can't confront issues. You have to be polite and create just an atmosphere where everyone's kind and loving, but it becomes very dysfunctional. Maybe you've seen situations like that. The church should be a very honest place. It should not be a place where we feel like we have to wear masks because I can't tell you what I really think. And so if there's sin in the camp, we need to know appropriate ways to address it. How do you respond to someone who says that if you don't endorse, endorse, then you don't really love? I think you show them that you love them. Uh, and again, I think it's a false dichotomy. You either fully support everything I do or you don't love me. That's, that's a silly statement. Uh, it's, I, I think the key is to show them I can love you while still having boundaries and barriers. Those of us who are parents, we love our children, even though we don't let them do whatever they want. Any of us who try to follow God know that God has given us rules to help maintain the relationship, rules that help us live the kind of life he wants us to live. It doesn't mean God doesn't love us. Those are there for our benefit, for our blessing. It's hard, though. When people feel like accept me as I am, or you clearly don't accept me. I think part of this also then gets to not having like ad hominem arguments, but also not equating someone's actions with who they are. If I drink and I don't, I've had communion wine when I was offered the real stuff in like an Episcopal church. And I've had alcohol in NyQuil because it sometimes is in our medicine. That's the only alcohol I've ever had in my life. But if I drank a bunch to the place that I would get drunk, that would be a problem. You might call me an alcoholic, and that might be true. But I would hope you would see that I'm still a person made in the image of God. That has not changed. The things that I do can be descriptive of me, but I am still someone worthy of respect as someone who bears the imago dei. I'm someone who can still be called to a life of repentance and salvation and transformation and deliverance, hopefully, from that alcoholism. So when we see someone caught up in a sexual sin, whatever it may be, that doesn't mean they are a rotten person. Their activities might be bad. They are still someone whom Christ loves. 
How do we call them to hear that and to see that and to live that out is the question. I see a comment from Amy in this slide. The person who was most influential in leading me to Christ was a former lesbian. You know, the, the concern using gay as an identity marker. Um, you're not wrong uh, when you talk about no longer having same-sex attraction, but many friends who do, and they prefer to use struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. That's good. She's introduced me to uh, others. They've emphasized that they found much more welcome in the conservative evangelical church uh, than they felt. I find the other end of the conversation surprising. I developed a network of former LGBT friends who are now Christian, including here in Kansas, all felt welcomed by their church family. Well, one, I'd say praise God. Uh, we hope church families find them welcome. And I will say that in some of the studies I've done, churches that have changed their denominational position have become much more inclusive and open insofar as like our United Methodist brothers and sisters changing a position. I don't know that you can demonstrably show that LGBTQ persons suddenly start going to those churches. So changing our position to try to reach out more, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be working. If we're doing it because we think Christ's love compels us, that's one thing. We don't change because we believe Christ's love compels us to still speak truth while doing it with grace. But there are churches where I hope people would feel welcome and not judged. And I hope those who say they struggle with it would not be condemned by those who are still involved in what we might call an LGBTQIA lifestyle which I hate to use that word, that phrase, because I think it's horrible. Uh, I don't know that you can define that any more than I would say, what's a heterosexual lifestyle? You know, that, that gets tricky. But I mean, for the conversation here, I think you know what I mean. There can be great, great judgment from lots of places and great, great judgment and isolation from outside the churches from within. I hope we would be a place that welcomes people and helps people come to repentance and faith and growth. Other questions. Is it important to identify an individual's sin? Of course. There may be concern that because we're specific and not keeping, uh, uh, there may be a concern that because we're specific and not keeping that we are all sinners. Why would we want to fall into this trap of classifying instead of keeping it in general that we have tempted and many have fallen? This is a good point insofar as I don't think the church should go around picking some sins over others. I was raised in the Free Methodist Church. Some of you were too. Um, I was baptized in the Free Methodist Church in Newcastle, Indiana when I was nine days old. And I've grown up in the Free Methodist Church since then. And some of you have heard me talk before uh, about the running joke that we used to have that you don't drink, drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. You know, there were certain things we don't do. The Free Methodist Church, I would say, we had our favorite sins. Not the ones we'd engage in, but the ones we'd pick on. So it was taught to me very, very early on that I should not be interested in any girls who smoke because they're probably a bad person. That's, that's the way I heard it in my infantile, pre-teenage sort of years. We picked on that as a very grievous sin. It didn't matter that the persons who said it maybe were gluttonous and extremely overweight and would gossip all day long. Those sins we don't talk about much. And so this is a very real point. And again, there's more than enough heterosexual sin to grieve the heart of God. This is not the one sin we should talk about. All of us are called to repent. All of us are called to live a life of holiness. And I'm sure all of us struggle with various things in our lives. Most of us do a really good job of just hiding them. It's just 
If I'm gay and I come to church with my partner and you see me holding hands with the guy, this is a much more public sort of sin that does not make it worse in God's eyes. The ones that we hide, that we justify, that we don't talk about, those are every bit as dangerous. And so I think we do want to avoid the trap of categorizing sin, of saying that some are worse. To be sure, the earthly consequences of some sins can be more devastating than others. If I lie to my wife, I might sleep on the couch. If I murder someone, there are far other consequences to that person, their family, to me and what the justice system does. There's different consequences to sin, but sin is sin, and it all grieves the heart of God. We shouldn't sin, and we need to call people to lives of holiness, whatever their struggle would be, not just pointing out the sin of another and ignoring my own. There's that whole log plank thing that comes to mind. How would we defend friends who are struggling with addictions or psychological problems when others may speak falsehoods? Again, so hard. You love them. You help people not hear the wrong voices that clamor for our attention. You make sure that the voices that we are speaking are true. Uh, and at some point, all we can do is show them by our actions. In my presentation Monday at, at Central's Chapel, I talked about Philip, Nathaniel, and the Gospel of John. Philip tells Nathaniel, come see the one that, that we've read about, that we've waited for. Nathaniel doesn't believe him. Philip just says, well, we'll come and see. And I love that because Philip doesn't try to convince him with dogma, doesn't try to convince him with great argumentation, doesn't justify it through creeds. As important as I really believe all those things are, he invites him into a relationship with Christ. Come close and see. And I would say when we're meeting with people, trying to help them understand our perspective, the best argument is to be in relational proximity to them and build a relationship. Come and see. Experience it for yourself. See that we believe certain things, but we're going to love you even if you don't believe it. We have difficult things, but we're going to talk through it even if it's uncomfortable. We are going to love you even when you do things that are wrong. Because as I read the Bible, the way you respond to me does not release my compulsion to still treat you with love. Whether you want to accept my forgiveness or not does not release my, my need to offer you forgiveness. And so how do we be that kind of person, that body, that church, that denomination that can show people, invite them in so they can see a God who loves them but does not leave them the same? To what extent are LGBTQIA persons to be welcomed into the life of the church and particularly ministry roles and leadership? If you read my book, and you don't have to, but I know several have, we do have a whole chapter on things that should or should not happen in the free Methodist church. Again, in our tribe, not saying it's true for every Christian everywhere. We talk about this a little bit, and I would say at some level, it depends on your church. Some things you know uh, could pass in your church more than in other places. So think of like your worship team. Who plays in the worship team? Do we see the people that are in the worship team all as spiritual leaders in the church? Some churches do. And so if there's some very real struggles, um, they may not be allowed to be there leading worship. Others will see this as just a ministry. So in, in my church in Lansing, where I pastored for 11 years before becoming the superintendent, 
our drummer, who is the most technically gifted musician in the entire worship team, he first came to us. He had just gone through a divorce. He was homeless. He smoked a lot of marijuana, and he lived in our transitional home. He got clean, stopped smoking. He ended up finding a job. He bought a house. He married a widower in the church. Uh, he became a solid Christian. But for years, there were some of the people who would see him as a bad man. And yet he was on the platform. He never spoke. He just stayed back there and could carry a very consistent rhythm. It was an excellent drummer. We had no problem with him using that gift to serve because it was part, I believe, of his redemption story. He was welcomed in. He belonged before he had to believe, behave and believe like we do. That isn't the true in every church. What works in your church? How does it make sense? Will people accept that? Can they move forward understanding the temptations that may be publicly confessed as God tells us to, but yet we may not be ready to hear it all? That's a, that's a struggle. A couple of years ago, I was speaking on this. I remember Bishop Matt Thomas, who's one of our Bishop Emeriti now, he was there. And if you know Bishop Matt, he has this big boisterous laugh. And I shared that I fear that sometimes we want our sins to be private and unconfessed rather than confessed and opened. And he laughed. But think about it. Think in your own life about the struggles you have. If next Sunday during prayer time, if they ask for, does anyone have a prayer concern, and you stand and you confess your private sin, what will the church do to you? We're supposed to confess our sins. Are you afraid of how they will respond? And if so, how do you think our LGBTQIA people feel when they feel, can I confess this? How do we create places where you can be welcomed, recognizing all have sinned and fallen short, but, and as a holiness tradition, I would choose to say, you're not defined as a sinner. You are saints. You are people for whom Christ died. You can overcome sin in your life, but we shouldn't judge others and forget what it's like to be outside uh, turning our back on God. I'll go on so we can get through these. How do we build relationships so we can discuss without condemnation? Now, building a relationship, it's to get grace through faith without relationship, without that godly relationship. Mayor Brown's a great thing. It is so, so hard because so often people want to know right now what's your position. Having written this book, having spoken at several conferences, doing things like this, I get letters every single week. And some people will ask me things as simple as, so is homosexuality a sin? And my response is usually, why are you asking me? It's not because I'm avoiding the subject. It's getting to the heart of why do you want to know? Because if you just want to say, hey, the superintendent of the conference, hey, that member of the study commission on doctrine, hey, that PhD dude who wrote a book, they said it's a sin. If you're just using it as a weapon to win an argument, I don't see how that's redemptive or helpful at all. I see us having this conversation so we can try to be agents of change so we can try to be redemptive. And so can we help people see the reason I want to have a conversation with you is not because I'm trying to win an argument and then I can wipe my hands and walk away. I want to better understand. And I want you to understand where I come from too. You may remember, some of you may know that several years ago, Bishop Roller, one of our maritime bishops and I wrote our denomination's immigration policy. And I remember getting some pushback from some people who did not like it at all. One person posted some comments. Bishop Roller wrote to me and said, do you want to respond or should I? And I was more than happy to defer to the bishop. 
Bishop Earler, you take it. And he wrote back. The person wrote again in response, not agreeing, arguing. And Bishop Roller wrote to me, and I'll never forget his words. I thought they were extremely wise. He said, if you want to engage with him, you can, but I am not. He clearly doesn't want a dialogue. He just wants a monologue where he can share his opinion and not listen to anything we say. The same thing I think would apply here. We have to be wise and discerning. Do they really want to hear what we're saying? Or do they have an agenda they want to advance no matter what anybody else says? And I think the same we need to make sure we ask of ourselves. Are we truly willing to listen? Or do we have an agenda we're going to advance no matter what you say to us? Next, I heard a pastor say the reason this sin and abortion are talked about more from the church is not because it's worse, but because there are church redefining it from sin to not sin at all. I completely agree. Again, it's a topic that is very prevalent now in churches where we talk about the issue and the struggle. And so that's why I said before, we have to be clear because people assume all kinds of things and different churches say all kinds of things. And you can go to places where they will take your words a little out of context, which happened to me last week with the central talk and say, you said this, and that's just not true. How do we do this in a way that's clear, recognizing that we need to address it? Because I do think the gospel calls us to be involved in the world today. I do think the gospel calls us to speak to issues today. I think God cares about what happens in your bedroom. I think God cares about what you do when it comes to national defense. I think God cares about how we spend our money. I think God cares about how we vote. I think all these sorts of things are not bad for the church to speak into. And so why does this happen more and more? I think it is because more and more Christians in the pews are concerned what is happening to what I've believed for so long. Was I wrong? Or is somehow the church shifting and drifting? This is why so many of our United Methodist sisters and brothers are coming to us and looking at other options too. They feel like the church they've loved has drifted from what they believe to be true and still believe to be true, and they can't be a part of it anymore. I pray that that would not be the perception that any of us would have as a free Methodist church and that trying to show grace and be Christ-driven, love-demonstrating, I pray it would not condemn anyone. I shared last week, and it sounds harsh, but the reality is I would hope that we would be more willing to be rejected for who we choose and how we choose to show love than to be loved because of who we reject. In other words, we're trying our best to love like Jesus did. We're accused of being that friend of sinners. And some may not like that. I would hope that we would be willing to choose that mantle than to clamor after acceptance because we've drawn lines on the sand and said, you're not welcome here. That we would be more inclusive while calling people to repentance and to change their lives, while recognizing we have a discipline, while recognizing holiness still matters. There is a lifestyle that goes along with honoring God with all that you are in your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your body is a part of that. Sexuality is a part of that. It's okay to speak to that while calling people to be a part of this with us. We have to be willing to forgive a person's past. We all have a past. Amen, Brother Lewis. <laughs> we often condemn people over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many people we used to have in our church that were felons, and we worked so hard to get them off parole. And yet, again, whatever you think of this rule, um, they used to complain to me, I still have to check this box on a job application all the time. I thought I paid my price. I feel like I still am. And there are people in the church who feel like they will never be forgiven for certain things. Hear me clearly. You need to be wise. 
So we had registered sex offenders that were part of our church. Could they come to church? A hundred percent. Did we let them anywhere around children? Not a chance. Every children's worker knew who they were. The security people knew who they were. They were not allowed anywhere near kids. We had people who'd embezzled money. Can they come to church? You betcha. Can they be on the church finance board or the treasurer? Nope. <laughs> you do some certain wisdom in how you proceed. There are, again, consequences to our sin, but that doesn't mean you don't welcome. And it doesn't mean we're not forgiving because there's places where you can be restored, but that often can take time. We all know that. That can take time. I think we're getting to the end of the questions, and maybe it's because we're getting to the end of the hour. I'm just wondering, are there other thoughts? Hopefully this has been you know, productive, not in that it answered questions on what's right, what's wrong, but really gave us a posture where we can believe, we do believe certain things are wrong. Homosexual activity, we believe is not God's will. Heterosexual activity outside of marriage is not God's will. But how do we love those persons? How do we love the persons still who are in God's will? I had a talk with a pastor recently who so wants to reach the lost. I love, love, love this pastor's heart. And yet my comment was, I love that you love the lost. As a pastor, you also have to love the saved. So how do we share God's word with those who are in our church, who love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the church and are trying to serve them both, but maybe a little judgmental, maybe a little harsh in how they present it. Dare I say, may seem a little pharisaical. Very clean hands, but hard hearts, or at least hearts that, that feel more judgmental than welcoming. If any of you have questions, do feel free to email me. I think you all have my email. Um, Audrey can post it in the chat. I'm, well, you all got this. So you've seen emails from me at some point or another. RevDrBruce at gmail.com. R-E-V-D-R-B-R-U-C-E at gmail.com. I'm more than happy to continue to talk and pray and discuss this. In fact, probably we need a lot of individual conversations because you have individual questions. We're at different places in this conversation. Some of us are really struggling with the grace thing. Some of us struggle with how much truth do I need to speak here into this person's life. That's okay. We all have room within the church. Uh, and I believe, again, the Free Methodist Church is big enough for all of us. The key is, can we honor God? Can we love God? Can we follow God? Can we be women and men who still profess faith in God by trusting in God's word, which is still true, and by living it out in our lives? You see, if you look at the chat, uh, Audrey posted my email address. You also see the Great Plains Conference email address. Uh, none of this we want to be hidden, and none of this we want to be a matter of confusion. So ask. And again, if any of this was disturbing because you think we said something you need clarity, please ask me. Don't live in the assumption that, that something's wrong. If you struggle with any of these issues, please ask me. We'll talk with it, and I will definitely be keeping you in my prayers as each of you serves different women and men who come into your doors who likely struggle with a lot of issues, some of whom may uh, have questions about LGBTQIA matters. So thank you again. I said we'd keep this for an hour. I think our hour is up.